So, Father, as we come to try and understand this passage, I pray that you'd help me to reliably teach it, that the obstacles to us hearing it would be removed, there'd be attentiveness and a focus, and that by your Spirit, both Jesus would be magnified and we would be changed. And so I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat and hunt down your Bible again or your phone or wherever it was you were looking at this uh, bit of passage, page uh, 1205, 1205, Hebrews chapter 6. And as I say, we're going to tackle probably just the first bit, sentences 13 to 15 this morning. Do you see the little phrase in sentence 12, the middle of sentence 12? Imitate, to imitate those. All of us, I think, in life have those we emulate or imitate in some kind of way. Let me throw out some of my little heroes for you. You might recognize some of the names. They slightly track through my life. Uh, one of mine was Johnny Wilkinson. Yeah, thank you very much. One person knows him. Rugby legend. In fact, one of my claim to fame is sharing a bath with Johnny Wilkinson. And I'm, I can tell you all about that later if you're interested. Only the ladies after the first service asked me about that, by the way. Not, not any of the men. I don't know what that means. Um, uh, how about Dick Lucas? Dick Lucas, not many of us will know who he is, but for me, he was very foundational, one of the first people who helped me understand how to understand and teach the Bible well and rightly. Now well into his 90s, um, but was rector of a place called St. Helen's Bishopgate down in London, in central London, just underneath the Gherkin. You know the Gherkin there, the massive Gherkin? His church nestles at the bottom of the Gherkin uh, in the centre of London there. Uh, Hannah Harris. Yeah, major inspiration, the most capable individual I think I know, huge inspirer for me. What about Danielle and Dee? Some of us know Danielle and Dee as part of this church. Danielle's on staff here, actually. They've inspired me recently. Did you know in June, they're doing a double marathon? They're going to run a double marathon, 54 miles is what they're going to do. Okay, I'm more impressed than you guys are. I found that impressive and pretty, pretty inspiring for those two ladies to do. Then there's my dad. Double PhD, I think it is now. Uh, MBE from the Queen a few years ago. Just a remarkable and marvellous man. Incredible capacities and yet as compassionate as he is able. Amazing man. Uh, and Dano, first person properly to tell me about Jesus and help me to trust in Jesus. Who are they for you? These people that we emulate or, or, or imitate, we all have them in life, don't we? A work colleague or a mentor in business who's, who's expanding your skills and her, uh, your horizons, a, a career role model that you're aspiring to be like, someone who actually you watch to learn about parenting. You know, someone you watch and go, actually, just a little bit more like them as a mum would be fantastic. Are names popping into your head? How they are a friend who really helped you in the past, is helping you now in terms of the person that you want to be with, someone who's come alongside you when times were tough and you want to be that same kind of friend to others. Celebrities in the best possible way. I had a great conversation with one of our musicians here about how uh, he signed up to this online tutorial with his uh, favourite bass player. The name meant nothing to me, but in the music world, everyone's like, Ooh, wow, wow, you're learning from him. Do you have those kind of people? Yeah. Who are they for you? See, right the way through the Bible, not least here, we're called to imitate people who are worth imitating. Do you see it there again in sentence 12? To imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. See, the call here for us, we are just like the original Christians who heard this, is to choose who we imitate carefully and well. But the question is, why? 
What's the risk, if you like, that this counters? Would you see the beginning of verse 12? It says, we do not want you to become lazy. That word means like inactive, not bothered. Lazy. We don't want you to become inactive when it comes to your trusting in Jesus. We want you to imitate those who are active and patient and waiting and pursuing him. See, the great challenge here, which is the great challenge to us as well, is Jesus has made a remarkable and wonderful promise. He has given us an unbelievable hope. Remember the repeat of the word hope when I read it four times and of the word promise four or five times. That's the context. Jesus has given us this hope, this promise that is almost unimaginable in its magnitude. And therefore, though we continue to believe it, we start to, be- we start to behave like it can never actually come true. It is so gigantic and beyond our comprehension that we become lazy with it. We can't imagine it can actually happen. Let me give you a sense of how enormous this, pro- this promise is. If you just keep your finger in Hebrews and turn to the very last book of the Bible, would you? Um, Revelation uh, chapter 21, penultimate chapter, last book of the Bible. It's about how the rest of time will be. It's on page 1249, 1249, Revelation 21. This is what it says, sentence three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Is that not an unimaginable promise? No more grief. No more grief for opportunities lost. No more grief that the person you were has been snatched away by mental illness or dementia. No more mourning of people taken away far too early from your life. And an intimacy with God so tender that he will wipe the tear from your eye. Other than when I was a child, I don't think I've ever had anyone wipe a tear from my eye. How intimate and trusting is that act. Sentence five, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words. This promise is trustworthy and true. Do you see the magnitude of the promise that God has made in Jesus? Through Jesus's death and resurrection, he said this future is a possibility. And yet what's happening in this letter to the Hebrews, which is us as Christians as well, is there is this tendency not to stop believing that in a kind of if I'm asked the direct question by Alex, the pastor, I'll obviously nod my head and say, yes, I do. But in a functional way that it impacts our living. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you like this. Back in the day when I was young and fit, I I ran a few marathons. 
And one of the things I learned about marathons and ultramarathons is actually you must not start training too early. Now that sounds odd. You might say actually you'd want every week and every day possible to make sure that when you ran it you didn't in fact die. But the trick is, is to start your training just at the right moment. Because if you start too early, what happens is the date of the diary, though it's certain, though you know it's coming, though it's not going to change, you know it's there, but because it is so far away, it feels so distant, you wake up each morning and you say, oh, I've got loads of time, I don't need to go for a run today. You wake up the next day and it's pouring down the rain and say, oh, I've got loads of time, I don't need to go for a run today. You need to actually start the training with enough time to get fit enough for it, but close enough that there's a little bit of urgency. If I don't run today, there's no other days I'll be able to do this run on. Does that make sense? God's promise is the same. It's definitely in the diary. It's definitely, definitely going to come. It's glorious and it's wonderful and it's fantastic. But the thing is, we start to treat it like it's so far away and it's so unbelievably and possibly magnificent that we wake up each morning and we go, ah, not going to do anything about it today. Does that make sense? Become inactive become lazy. It's not that you deny God will keep his word, it's just it has no impact on your day, on how you use your money and how you use your time and how you raise your children and your thought life and your internet usage and on and on the list goes, how you build your career, what you aspire to do with it and all that kind of stuff. You just wake up each morning and say, hey, I know it's true, but it's so far away and it's so massive, I'm not going to do anything about it today. The solution to that, he says here, is to imitate, is to choose well who you imitate. Imitate those who have waited patiently, expectantly, actively, who wake up each day and go, I know it's massive and I know it's way in the future, but it does impact how I live today. So who's his great role model for us? Look at sentence 13 to 15. As I say, that's all we're going to look at this morning. Look at who he puts in front of us as our role model. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what had been promised. Now, Abraham is his role model, and Abraham is talked about right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Lots of the story of Genesis, Genesis means origins or beginnings, lots of it is about Abraham and then Abraham's descendants. Let me recap for you, because not all of us will be familiar with the story, the extent of the promise that God gave Abraham. It's in in Genesis chapter 12. He said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you the... Uh, patriarch of the greatest nation that has ever lived. I'm going to give you your own land with boundaries and governments, and you're going to be so influential and powerful in the world that you'll be a huge global player. Now, that's a big promise, isn't it? That's a pretty massive promise. Imagine me when I was 29 years old and Hannah was on the cusp of Layla. We're in Shanghai where we were living at the time. We'd been there only three months. We had to get in a taxi. I could see the floor through the rust underneath the taxis. We threw through the motorway and we got into the hotel, uh, the hotel, got into the hospital. More hotel for me, hospital for her. We got there and the baby's about to be born, our Isaac, the first one. Imagine someone walked up to me in that moment and said, hey, Alex, you are going to become the patriarch. Through your offspring, you're going to become the patriarch of a multitude of people. 
You're going to look out on a whole sports stadium of children that are your grandchildren, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and you're going to be the most powerful global nation there is. And you're going to start it, Alex. What do you think I would have done at that moment? You laughed, wouldn't I? Which is exactly what Abraham's wife does, actually. Sarah, she laughs. <laughs> what? Ridiculous. You see, the promise is even bigger than that, though. At least I was having a child. At least I was 29 and there was possibility for more children at that age. Abraham at this moment is probably about 80, 85 years old. He's one of the many people in the Bible, like many of us in this room, who had real challenges having children. They weren't able to and they'd given up all hope. He goes to an 85-year-old who has no children at all and says, the promise is you are going to become that great patriarch. Do you realize how ridiculous that promise is? How impossible that promise is? How outrageous that promise is? It's on the same scale as our Revelation 21 promise, isn't it? Yeah. It's there because God keeps his promise to Abraham. And if he kept that outrageous promise to Abraham, he's going to keep that outrageous promise to us. That's why it's there. So we can look at the ridiculous nature of God's promise and realize it is well within his capabilities to do. So we now look at the ridiculous nature of his promise in Jesus and we realize it's well within his capabilities to do. But here we're to look at Abraham. Do you see how Abraham responds? Sentence 15. He waited patiently. Do you see that little phrase there? He waited patiently. We're called to emulate that, emulate that patient waiting. So what does it look like to be like Abraham? To patiently wait for this enormous promise that's going to come and be complete. Well, the answer lies here in Hebrews and in the life of Abraham. What happens in Hebrews, just structurally for a moment, is from chapter 7, the writer goes off on one on a random tangent about a mysterious figure called Melchizedek, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks. I'm going to practice saying so I can say it without stuttering. And then come chapter 10, he comes back to this idea of promise and hope and waiting patiently. So let's go to chapter 10. Let's, make, let's jump over Melchizedek and come back to the idea of hope and promise. Chapter 10, sentence 23. You can, you can turn there and that's where we're going to stay. Look at sentence 23, chapter 10, page 1208, sentence 23 to 25. Let us therefore hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised it is faithful. You see promise and hope reappearing. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the Revelation 21 day approaching. Can you see how he's come back to the idea of promise and hope and waiting expectantly and pursuing that day to come? I've got four lessons from these couple of sentences in chapter 10 and Abraham's life about what waiting patiently isn't and is. And again, I want you thinking, and maybe the marathon illustration works for you, put your own one in if it doesn't, but I want you thinking actually, how have I become inactive? How have I continued to believe, yes, that day will come, but not functionally work it out in my choices day by day? 
Here's the first of the four lessons. Waiting patiently is not inactive or passive. Waiting patiently is not about sitting down, crossing our legs, and just being passive. We know that because he said, we do not want you to be lazy. So whatever patient waiting is the opposite of laziness. We know it because when we look at Abraham's life, the first thing God sends him, tells him to do is to go, is to get up and change countries and migrate to a new place. He's called to be active. And we know it here because in chapter 10, sentence 24, it says we're to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to be active. I love, just as a side, I love that little word spur on. Uh, the English is a correct translation of the Greek. It comes from what horse riders wear on the back. You can imagine a cowboy with his big spurs on the back with a spinny disc ninja star or something like that. How do you spur a horse on? Huh! Don't you? Right in its ribs with those things. That's how Christians are meant to relate to each other. A nice, friendly, provocative nudge, just like that, exactly. Spur each other on. There's a place for tough love in this. It's exactly like that marathon runner who knows there is that certain date in the future, that knows the marathon is coming, knows the start line is in front of them, and wakes up in the morning and goes, this morning I will do what is necessary to live out the reality of that day to come. I will love and I'll do good deeds and I'll live like the promises are true in how I function how I spend my money and how I spend my time and how I use my words. It's hugely active and it's encouraging one another to be active. Do you see that? It's not just about being active, loving and having good deeds. It's about spurring others on to be active. So it's both and. Uh, the second of the four lessons is waiting patiently is not about always getting it right. Waiting patiently, being active in waiting, is not about always getting it right. If you know the story of Abraham, you'll know that Abraham made some terrible, terrible decisions. Not just mistakes, accidentally, but intentional choices that were horrendous. God had said, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to give you loads of offspring. Abraham looked at Sarah, his wife, who had been unable to have children. How painful is that? For all of her life. And he decided, I must have an affair to do this. He was an adulterer. Horrendous, intentional mistakes. Did God call him back? Did God say, continue being one of my promise keepers, continue being one of my people? Yes, God did. And God does. So waiting actively is not ruined by poor decision making. It's ruined by not coming back to God after poor decision making, but it's not ruined by poor decision making. In fact, that's exactly why here in Hebrews 10, it says, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You've got to keep coming and meeting together and hearing the Bible taught to be brought back in line, back in line with the way that you're meant to live, back in line, back in line. Someone once said to me, Alex, you've got to imagine your week a little bit like on Monday, you're sort of close to God. Tuesday, you're a bit further. Wednesday, a bit further. Friday, Friday, you're quite away. And then comes Sunday, God goes, come back to me. 
And then you drift and drift and drift. Come back to me. Drift and drift and drift. Come back to me. Now, I don't know if that's accurate for you. I'm not sure it's even accurate for me, but I think there's something helpful in that idea of why it's important to gather together regularly. You leave it too long, you will have drifted too far for your heart to be able to return. So the second lesson is this active waiting is not about having it all together. It's not about that every decision you've ever made was great. In fact, I love the Bible. Just as an aside, I love how the New Testament looks back at the people of the Old Testament. Because the Bible talks very positively here in Hebrews and elsewhere about Abraham. It's almost like you say, hang on a minute, did you not read the whole story? Did you not see what Abraham did? How can you speak so positively about Abraham? I think the reason is, is we're called to look back with a video of someone's life, not a snapshot. We're called to look back and see the whole of someone's life, a DVD video of all of it with its ups and downs, so we can see the true trajectory, not just take a snapshot of one moment. I'm glad no one assesses my life on the snapshots. Because if you've got a bad snapshot, you'd be like, Alex is absolutely terrible. Oh my goodness. If you've got a good snapshot, my head would explode and I wouldn't fit through the door, right? Equally unhelpful. What you need is the video of the whole, isn't it? The video of the whole. Third lesson to learn of the four is this patient waiting, this certainty of the day that will come, of God keeping his promises and how it works out functionally in our life, is it is not easy. It is not easy. Abraham's life didn't suddenly become easy when he chose to follow God's way. In fact, Abraham's life became infinitely harder. He had to migrate to a whole new country and a whole new culture as an 85-year-old man and get resettled in a country he didn't even know the language. That's what it meant for him. Every now and again, I speak to people who are wanting to discover who Jesus is, often they're driven by a life disaster that has hit them and somehow they've got into their heads and I hope it's not because a, a Christian has unhelpfully spoken to them, but somehow they've got into their heads, if they trust in Jesus, Jesus is going to take away that pain. They're suddenly going to be healed of that terminal cancer, or the relationship that's broken is suddenly going to be fixed, that God is going to somehow zap it all and make it like the Truman Show ideal. And yet there is nothing in the Bible at all that says following Jesus is easy. Quite the opposite. Jesus himself says, if you choose to follow me, you take up your cross to follow me. The criminal's cross. The promises are for the future. It is so damaging to take the promise of Revelation 21, of no more tears, of no more pain, of no more of mourning, of a body that is fixed, of a mind that is fixed, of relationships that is fixed, to take the promises reserved for eternity and bring them into our life today. That ruins and destroys faith and it shames Jesus because it puts words on Jesus' lips, promises on Jesus' lips he never made. Abraham's life was difficult. Here in Hebrews 10, the word there in sentence 25 is encourage one another. It literally means to put courage, to put strength or fortitude into someone else's life. It assumes they need strength. It assumes life is hard and we have to strengthen each other to see it through. The bravest men and women around us, I think, are not our soldiers next door, but are our folk who are entering into older age. Old age is not for cowards, is it? 
And so we put strength into you. Mothering young children is not for cowards. And so we put strength into you. But it is not easy, is the point. The promises are for the future. They are not for today. And fourth and finally, this patient waiting is not going it alone. It's not going it alone. We do live in the culture in the UK where there is this kind of gung-ho attitude a little bit to all of life. I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone around me. I, I can do it. I can achieve it. And we celebrate that. Most of our heroes are individual heroes. It's why bands split and people go solo because there's infinite more fame to be had if you're the sole singer as opposed to a part of a band. It's a cultural thing. In other countries, individual artists come together to form bands because that culture celebrates the collective. It's very interesting. But here in our culture, we celebrate the, the individual. Most of Western companies have a CEO or a chairman of the board, one person. You go to other cultures in the world, and actually you would never see that. You wouldn't know who the CEO was, because there's five in a team. So our cultural norm, and most of us are saturated in a Western culture, our cultural norm is to go, I can do it alone. I can do it alone. But we, we can't. We absolutely cannot. Abraham was surrounded by a huge clan. He was never on his own. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, it's all plural language, isn't it? Sentence 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Sentence 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on. It's all plural. Have you got another follower of Jesus who actually knows you? Have you got another follower of Jesus who can penetrate your life genuinely and see what's really going on? Or have you fallen into the cultural lie that says you can do it on your own and you're weaker if you need others? Where do we get that from? After all, it's the lone wolf that starves in winter, isn't it? It's the isolated antelope that's taken out by the predator. It's the solo runner who never gets her personal best. It's the separated soldier away from her unit who gets taken out by the sniper. We were called to do it together. In a moment, we're gonna sing and Kevin's gonna take us back to communion, which anchors us again in the sure and certain promise of God. He has achieved his promise when Jesus died and resurrected. It will come to fruition in the future. We know it will because of that death on the cross in the past. The future is certain because of the past event. As we come to that communion, of remembering we can trust the promise, my question is, do you just adhere to it mentally? Of course, I'm, I'm a Christian. So of course I know Revelation 21 eternity, heaven, paradise, whatever you want to call it, of course I know. Or do you also function like it? Like the, tra the one training for a marathon who actually gets up and does the run that day, even though the marathon race seems so far away. They do what is needed for that day. And which one of these lessons is important for you? 
not to become lazy, inactive, passive, but to be pursuing Jesus hard? Is it to remind yourself you need others around you in a real way? Is it to remind yourself that it's not easy and if life is difficult and being a Christian is hard and being a parent is hard and marriage is hard and singleness is hard and achy bones are hard and mental health is hard and you're just normal in the most encouraging, positive, affirming way, that's normal. Jesus loves you. Is it to remind you that you won't have always got it right and your decisions have not ruined your life? Like Abraham's decisions didn't ruin his life? If and as you come back to Jesus' way? Or is it to remind yourself just simply, as we wait for that great day in the future, we're active and not passive. Let me pray for us, and then Kate will lead us in a song to move us to communion. Father God, I thank you that you love us too much to allow us to drift away from you without warning and without calling us home. I thank you for that love that reaches into our lives, into every day of our life, every minute, every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, right the way through the week. As you call us to be your people and to live for you in the light of your promises in our daily activity. I pray, Father, that for those of us who need a reminding of the extent of your promises, you would work that into our minds and our hearts, especially when those promises seem so far away or we long for them so much, so much we long for the pain to be taken away. Remind us of the certainty of our future and the certainty of your promises in Jesus. And for those of us, Lord, who have forgotten the promises in a functional way, we, we no longer live like these promises are true. We just bob along in our lives, indistinct from anyone else around us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reinvigorate us with the incredible calling that we have for those of us who trust and follow Jesus, that we get to live out your promises in our lives for your glory. Make us a people who are beautiful in our promise following. And so I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing with Kate and then Kevin will lead us in communion. <coughs>